Martin Luther King Jr. famously said that the most segregated hour of Christian America is right now. 11 a.m., he says, on Sunday morning. But you should know, friends, that is not the biblical intention. It's not the biblical intention. And so take a moment and try and imagine an America where amidst of time of segregation, at that very same time, the church of Jesus Christ was known for its integration. What would that have been like? Amidst the time of segregation in America, the church was known for its integration. Try and imagine what that what might have been done, not only for our nation. Try and imagine what what might have been done for the witness of Christ and his gospel. The visible church representing the invisible reality of the oneness of the church across tribe, tongue, and nation. It's a beautiful thought to think about, isn't it? It's a wonderful thought. Jesus prayed, they will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. And this morning we come to a passage that will challenge us towards that end. To challenge us not only to not think about, uh, to not only think about ethnic partiality, but any kind of partiality in order that the love of Christ might be manifest in his church. This morning we come to James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, which you've heard read. And there, again, we're going to learn about this notion of the Lord's counsel to show no partiality, no favoritism, no distinctions, no evil distinctions, no discriminations, no segregations, no prejudice, no cool crowds, but instead justice to and for all human beings created in the image of God. So this morning, the law of liberty will challenge us to not only imagine such a community like that, but to be a community like that in the love of Christ. So big idea this morning, pretty straightforward and clear. Do not be partial, but show love to all. Do not be partial, but show love to all. First point, do not be partial. You can see the command there. It's very clear in verse one. Show no partiality. As, that's an important word, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Some of your translations may say, do not show favoritism. Right? So there's no qualification here. You hold, you claim to hold faith in Christ. Well, show no partiality, no favoritism. And it's important to understand the context of this passage. We've thought about this over the last few weeks. James chapter 1, verse 18. God brought forth Christians. He brought us forth by the word of truth. He did it. James 1, 21. Receive with meekness the implanted word. But not only receive with meekness the implanted word. Also, verse 22. uh, But be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves. That's what an authentic Christian is. They don't just hear the word, but they also do what it says. To do otherwise is to be deceived. A Christian in name only. But what would it look like, you ask, to not only receive the word, but to do the word and not be deceived? Well, James spends the rest of his letter marking that out. That's what we're going to be thinking about now for the next month or two. Just works right through that. What would it look like to then be doers of the word? And we left off last week. In James 1.27, where the authentic Christian cares for the orphan and the widow in their affliction, as well as being unstained from 
the world. And the very first thing that he mentions next, after thinking about caring for the needy and then not and living unstained from the world, the first thing he mentions is to not show partiality. And guys, this is a masterful connection because the world loves partiality. Be unstained from the world. Don't show partiality. Implication, the world loves partiality. Even those who call for equality today, friends, love partiality. And if we were being honest, we love partiality, don't we? We don't want to admit it, but it's true. James then, after this, then gives us an image of what partiality does. You can see that there in verses 2 and 3. So we can imagine someone in a similar example from verses 2 and 3 walking into the back of that door, and maybe you're there, and you see someone with the best threads, and they're all iced up with all of their jewelry, and they walk in. They look good, they smell good, and the like. You see them come in, and you see another person, another member of the church walking in that same door, and they're dirty, they're unkept, they smell bad, and you see them walk in, and they see you see them both heading towards your seat. And you say to the wealthy man, the good-smelling, nice-looking man, you say to him, you come sit next to me. And then you encourage that poor man, that smelly man, you go sit in the back over there. That's the illustration that James gives us. So we show partiality or favoritism by preferring one over the other as evidenced by our paying attention to some people or and then ignoring or denigrating another set of people. Putting one person in a better place and another person in a lesser place. Verse 4 then gives the explanation of what happens when we do this, when we show partiality. It gives the explanation. Verse 1 is the command, show no partiality. Verse 2 and 3, the illustration, preferring rich to poor. Verse 4, the explanation of what happens when we show partiality. Have you not, it says, then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, guys, I want you to see there's four things there, four things that help us understand our partiality and why it moves into uh, sinful places. Four things. We make distinctions among ourselves, becoming judges with evil thoughts. And we need all four of these things in order to understand again how we land into the camp of partiality. And so the first thing it says, making distinctions. Now, to be clear, this is really important that you hear this. Making distinctions is not wrong in and of itself. God makes distinctions and says those distinctions are very good. Father, son, spirit, male, female, husband, wife, children, righteousness, unrighteousness, sheep, goats, in Christ, not in Christ. Distinctions are not wrong in and of themselves. In fact, the Lord loves the distinctions that he made for himself. And he again calls them very good. Genesis 1.31. But he hates distinctions that we have made among ourselves. Separate from those that God has made for good. And that leads us to that second thing, making distinctions secondly among yourselves. In other words, partiality distinctions are made separate from God's good distinctions. Not among God's distinctions, among your own distinctions. This then reveals the position of the heart, right? Preferring one over another in ways that God does not prefer one over another. 
That then is the third thing. We then, having done that, we then become judges. Judges of those distinctions that we've made among ourselves. We define standards of thought or behavior, right? This is better than that, whatever the case may be. These kinds of people are better than those people. And we do that, fourthly, with evil thoughts, which is a kind of summary statement, I think. The, the whole process is done with evil thoughts. Not, good, not God's good thoughts of liberty and justice for all. It's thoughts for ourselves and our distinctions, not for God and neighbor love. Now, you can see why these four things are the main ingredients that would turn God's good distinctions into man's evil distinctions. In essence, what the illustration of the two men coming to church shows us is that those who have done this have tried to kind of wall off a subdivision inside of the kingdom of God to be full of people that we like or people that we will in some ways think benefit us. That's the idea, that when we start to have that partiality as those that understand ourselves to be Christians, we kind of think we can create a little subdivision inside of the kingdom of God. Try to create a kingdom within the kingdom that is governed by our own set of laws that we judge on our own with evil intentions. It's a kind of form of arrogance. It's a form of idolatry. It's a form of selfishness. And James says this is not hearing and then doing the word. This, in other words, is deception. This is not authentic Christianity. Now, at this point, we should then ask ourselves the question, well, then why do we do this? Why do we do this? Why do people do this? Why do we make distinctions among ourselves and become judges? Why do we show favoritism like this? What's going on? Well, the core issue at play here seems to be that of value. Value. We we value one type over another type. Exalting one while denigrating another with ourselves as the judges. We're kind of little kings and queens inside of that little kingdom of the kingdom. Because we value one type over another type. And too often we've set up these little sub-kingdoms based upon our own distinctions with evil thoughts because we value certain people in different ways based upon our own value system, not God's, because we think that those people can in some ways benefit us. And so, such a way, it becomes then selfish. It becomes idolatrous. So the rich can benefit me, right? So we say, come on over. Live next to me. And then the poor, we can't see any ways in which they can benefit us. So we say, be gone. And in so doing, you devalue the poor man. It's a little phrase that I think, a little equation that helps us think about this, right? Stated belief plus actual practice equals actual belief. My stated belief is all people are created in the image of God. My actual practice is I really prefer this one kind of person and I don't like those kinds of persons. So your actual belief is that all people are not created in the image of God. That denigration of the people that don't fit your system reveals the position of the heart. And so James is even going to go on to talk about not only how we treat, but even how we talk about other people. You'll see this when we get to James chapter 3. In particular, we'll see him talk there about how we shouldn't use our tongues to slander or curse someone else. So in so doing this, using our tongues to slander someone else or gossip about someone else, no matter what we say we believe, we uh, ignore them, maybe we slander them, we gossip them, we treat somebody with partiality, with our own distinctions, by our slandering one type of person, gossiping about one kind of person, and honoring another type of person, 
And so in a, as a consequence, those people that we're talking about, we then devalue that person that God values as an image bearer. Partiality in word or in deed, friends, attempts to assign people with different values in keeping with the metrics of one's own judgments and not God. One illustration of this I was thinking about this week. My boys uh, collect baseball cards. Uh, let's be honest, I collect a little bit of baseball cards myself. And they get these, these things called Beckets, and they, they give values to all the different cards. This card is worth this much, and that card is worth this much, and this card is going down in value, and that card is going up in value. And that's basically what we do when we show partiality. Just kind of going around assigning, you're worth this much, you're not worth that. Your value is going down because of what you've done to me or whatever. It's what we do. This, friends, is living stained or tainted by the world and not unstained, as James commanded. This is hearing but not doing the word as Christ did. And so we then ask, oh, what does God think about this sin of partiality? Well, you can see that in verses 9 and 10. There we get what he thinks about it. If you show partiality, he says, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So in other words, what he's saying there is it doesn't matter if you're, if you're keeping every other law of God. If you, if you have set up for yourself a segment of people that you value more than others and then treat those others with little attention or slanderous attention, James says, you fail all the law. You then are in the camp of sin. It's like putting uh, one card from the bottom of a house of cards. It's like pulling one out from the bottom. You pull one card from the bottom of a house of cards, they all fall. And so you could be hearing and doing all in all the other places, but you fail in the law of partiality, all the house of cards comes crumbling down. Which means, friends, we've all pulled the card, haven't we? We've all committed the sin. Maybe are committing the sin of partiality. So then we think about the consequences. And the consequence of failing the law like this and not endeavoring to check it not endeavoring to repent of it or walk in the law of liberty, as we thought about last week, and we'll think again today, not checking this, not repenting this, not fighting against this. We see the consequence to this sin in verse 13, people that are unwilling to repent. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. It is, you're not willing to be merciful to all, then you reveal your ignorance of understanding God's mercy to you. And as a consequence, you then get no mercy. And so then, friends, just to kind of sum up what we've said, what James has said, he says there in verse 1, don't show partiality. It lies about God and his law. Second, we said partiality is described as setting up a group of people that we ascribe as having more value than others. It's a form of idolatry and selfishness. And this, we saw, is a sin. It's a failure of the law. And if left unchecked, its consequences are judgment, no mercy. Now, the reality is we all admit, as I've been saying, this sin is common to all of us, isn't it? And since it's so common, it's easy to fall under its deception. So easy to fall under its deception. And so since I don't want any of us to stay in that deception and suffer the consequences of judgment, I took the time this week to consider some categories of partiality so as to shine the light of them on them so that we would all know where deception is and where it isn't. 
I don't want us to be deceived. Now, as I walk through these, you'll see some of these are more severe than others. However, I think you'll see uh, these all need addressing so that we might live under the law of liberty and know the love of Christ and show the love of Christ and love neighbor itself. So here are some ways that we can all be tempted to create distinctions among ourselves and be judges with evil intentions. I've got eight categories. Here's the first. The first one is the distinctions of socioeconomic status. The very illustration that James uses here. We prefer the wealthy over the poor. We're glad to have a meal with the middle class or the wealthy class. but We're not happy to have a meal with the poor. We like having our churches full of people that look good and give good. We'd rather not be a church full of many, too many poor people. Maybe we would, uh, maybe we wouldn't mind spending some time with the poor, but we don't really want to be seen with the poor. And whereas at the same time, we'd really love to go viral with taking a walk with someone that's wealthy and famous. We create distinctions of socioeconomic status. Secondly, then there's the distinctions that we make among ourselves as judges with age. With age, you'd, you'd think it'd be great if the church had more of this age of people and less of that age of people. Instead of celebrating age diversity, you long for one or maybe two's distinction of ages to the neglect of the others. Don't want too many of those kinds of people, those age people. You can create sinful distinctions, socioeconomic age. And then thirdly, then there's the distinctions we make among ourselves as judges with ethnicity. You'd rather surround yourself with people that look like you while also keeping those that don't look like you away. Keep them away. This literally became law in the United States of America. Jim Crow laws. Whites at that time only wanted to eat, go to school, swim in the pool, or go to church with whites and not blacks. Or for that matter, Asians or Latino people. Keep them away. Let us have our own space. One of the greatest blights of our nation. We are so covered up in this sin, it's easy to think that somehow America is unique in this sin of partiality. But friends, we're not. I've traveled enough of the world to see that this sin of partiality, ethnic partiality, is everywhere. I've been in the streets of uh, Iraq, ministering to the Kurds, the Kurds being a, a minority people, not treated well in the Muslim world. And yet at the very same time, they treat Uh, with great partiality, the Yazidis in that same community, making them live on a certain part, making making them, uh, giving them higher prices in the marketplace and the like. I've stood at the border of the Dominican Republic where uh, Dominicans so loathe and denigrate the Haitian people that when trucks come out of Haiti and into the Dominican, the soldiers wipe off the mud of the the tires on the trucks. They come in because they don't want Haitian dirt on their ground. It's everywhere. The sin of ethnic partiality is universal and tragic on epidemic proportion. And with great lament, we must confess that it has reached the church of Jesus Christ. We can even think about this in the story of Acts. This is one of the two big times in which the church kind of shuts down. Acts chapter 6, they're certain, certain, serving certain kinds of Jews and not intentionally serving other kinds of Jews. Acts 15, right? Same things, Jew and Gentile. They kind of shut it all down. Such a problem. Ethnic partiality. Then there's the distinction we make among ourselves as judges with gender. 
Now, friends, to be clear, this is one of those distinctions that God makes with joy. Right? Just as ethnicity is God's joy, but uh, we see the distinction of genders marked out right time and again in the law of liberty with the family and inside of the church. But as we've said, the problem comes when we construct our own distinctions that are of a different value from God's distinction. Oftentimes, this has happened with men making sinful distinctions with women. Men having made women to feel devalued in the way they've silenced them in unbiblical ways or abused them, or even not made them to be a meaningful part of the life of the church, which Jesus bought with his own blood. And then there's the distinctions we make among ourselves as judges with politics. We're just jumping all in this morning, folks. This is often done with particular policies that are not explicitly moral or immoral. In other words, there's no clear moral stance that we could ascribe a biblical word to, like murder, we can ascribe to abortion. So this could be something like big government or small government or foreign policy measures or the handling of immigration or economics. One group of confessing Christ followers says Title IX or affirmative action is just, while the other group of confessing Christ followers says it's unwise. They gather into groups and think themselves better than their brothers and sisters in Christ. And then there's the distinction we make among ourselves with partisan policy. One group of confessing Christians says you cannot vote for that candidate. The other group of confessing Christians says you can't vote for the opposite candidate. As though one candidate perfectly encapsulated the teaching of Christ and his kingdom. Each one treating their own candidate like the wealthy man and the other like the poor man, even though both are sinners in need of a savior. And then there's the distinctions we make among ourselves as judges with style or preferences. Vegetarians versus carnivores. Homeschoolers versus public schoolers. Two-parent earning a wage versus one-parent earning a wage. Recycling, no recycling. And then inside of the church. Chairs versus pews. Calvinists, right? Calvinists, I told you we're going to be equal opportunity offenders this morning. Calvinists versus Arminians, right? Relational evangelists versus contact evangelists. Programmatic versus organic. Contemporary music or traditional music. We've literally divided churches and services over these things. One group within the same church, thinking their distinction is God's and anyone else's is not, when God is clearly not divine away in his word on those things. And so they avoid each other and slander one another behind each other's backs. Or they sit next to each other in church and they judge each other in their hearts. And finally, there's the distinctions we make among ourselves as judges in social groups. Now, this is a big one. We could put all kinds of things in this group, but I'm going to give three. We are partial towards those in the same life stage as ourselves. This is similar to the age segment, but it isn't just age. It could constitute single versus the married folks, only spending time with them and not wanting to spend time with the others. Married with kids versus married with, married with no kids versus married with, with kids. Married with kids versus single with kids. Empty nesters versus married with newborns. On it goes. Partiality would only want to surround themselves with those in the same life stage and not spend meaningful time with those that are not in that stage. And I want to be here. I want to have just a word of caution. 
some of these things are understandable and even advisable. Moms getting together with themselves. Campus outreach, spending time with college students and the like. Singles, spending time together. Of course that's okay. Even advisable at times. The problem comes, though, when we value one group over the other and we neglect the other. Again, making distinction for ourselves and becoming judges of those outside that distinction as evidenced by our distancing our lives from them intentionally. But then we can be partial towards certain cultural statuses. In D.C., that's often educational attainments or job status. The Ph.D. thinks themselves better than the guy that never went to college. Or the master's degree thinks themselves better than the bachelor's degree. Or the NGO worker thinks themselves better than the high school teacher. Uh, One group thinks their security clearance makes them better than the one with a lesser security clearance. The stay-at-home mom thinks themselves better than the working mom. Or the working mom thinks them better than the stay-at-home mom. The medical worker thinks themselves better than the salesman. On it goes. But one more that is relevant for us in this social category is maskers and vaxxers versus anti-maskers and vaxxers. One group talks about the other as though they were superior to the others, thinking they have the morally superior position, while the other just hasn't thought it through like they have, thinking themselves better. Beloved brothers and sisters, there is no room for partialism like this in Christ's church. We're to bear each other. Bear with each other in love. Behavior like this is just like the world. It's not living unstained from the world. It's not hearing and doing. So much of this behavior doesn't even make sense. Right, just look back at the passage. Look down in James 2.5. When James says there, listen, my beloved brothers. And by the way, I love the affection which he's trying to address this. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? In other words, James is, is going, hasn't God been regularly choosing to save the poor and make them part of the kingdom? And then he goes on to address the wealthy in the very next verse, 6 and 7. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? In other words, James is saying, can't you see God is saving the poor and making them part of his kingdom? Why would you ignore them? Why would you mistreat them? They're our family. And then he goes on to say, basically, and these wealthy people that you're treating with favoritism, they don't even like you. They oppress you. They drag you into court. And they don't even like the name by which you were called. You are in Christ, beloved. In Christ. And the wealthy, James is saying, they blaspheme that name. They could care less, they could care less about us that are in Christ. And yet you favor them? While the poor are coming in? Doesn't even make sense, right? The wealthy even might even use the, the name of Christ as a cuss word. And it's our whole life. Why, James is saying, why are you trying to bend towards a world that cares nothing for our Jesus and bend away for the people that do care about our Jesus? What are you doing, James is saying? This doesn't even make sense. Partiality, friends, makes no sense in the economy of God's kingdom, but somehow it makes sense to us because we have too much of the stains of the world still in us. Reminded of the words of Tim Keller, who said that when the Israelites were brought out of Egypt, they could come out of Egypt, but they couldn't get, a, they couldn't get Egypt out of them. 
This is not who Jesus made us to be. And Jesus even talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 46 to 47. When he says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing? What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In other words, Jesus is saying, it's easy to love those that are like you. It's easy to love those that are like you. It's hard to love those that are not like you. And yet, beloved, that's the gospel. Right? Remember? That's the gospel. While you and I were enemies of Christ, he loved us. You and I were the poor man in the shabby clothing, and he gave us a seat of honor. Though he was rich. You had nothing to offer Christ of your own, save your sin. My sin, I had nothing to offer him. And yet, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Beloved, don't show partiality. It reeks of a world stained with sin. And it is in league with Satan, whose goal is to split the church of Jesus Christ that he bought with his own blood, distracting us from the glorious sight of the king of glory. If the church of Christ just got this one thing right, just this one, can you imagine what difference it would make? If we could just learn to love as Jesus did, how might things be different if we increasingly became doers of the world word by not showing partiality as Christ did? And just think about Christ. Think about the people that were attracted to Jesus, right? As James says in verse 5, the poor are attracted to him, right? The, the prostitute, the drunkards. But it's important to note that's not all the people that were tr- attracted to him. Nicodemus, right? And still other Pharisees had him over for dinner regularly. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, would have been a wealthy man in his day, was drawn to Jesus. King Herod gladly heard Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist, preach. Everyone was drawn to Christ. You want to know why? Because he didn't show partiality. Jesus knew that all of our stations in life, all of Jesus was conscious of the fact that all of our stations in life, rich or poor, popular or unpopular, he knew that all of them lead to the same place. Dust in the ground. And he knew full well what would meet us there after we died. Judgment. That was never lost on him, which led him to not be partial. And so he came on a rescue mission to save the poor and the wealthy, men and women, political zealot and the politically disinterested, the Jew and the Gentile, the slave and the free. He loved his enemies and he loved them all the way to the cross. This is why James calls this uh, life of obedience to Christ a law of liberty. Because it frees us to love the way that we were meant to love. Instead of loving the way that we want to love because of our own preferences, our own distinction. The church of Christ is to be conformed to that honorable name by which we have been called. I'm in Christ. You're in Christ and he is in us. Therefore, as he loved us, so we love all without partiality. And so let's go there briefly. Do not be partial. Secondly, show love to all. 
so be assured. Look at verse 1 there again. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Partiality is often about glory accumulation, isn't it? We want glory for ourselves in some way. Well, beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, you already have the Lord of glory. You will never have more glory than you do in Christ. Especially not on this earth where the glory fades, as James told us. Back in chapter 1. But then slide down to verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. And so loving neighbor as self is the royal law of the king of glory. There's Christ who is the king of glory. What's his royal law? To love God and to love neighbor as self. Which, by the way, loving neighbor as self is the opposite of partiality. This is literally what Jesus did. He loved his neighbor so well that he died for the sins of his neighbors. And not for just any of his neighbors. Neighbors that were his enemies in different stations of life. Neighbors that deserve judgment. All of us. And yet, as it says there in James 2.13, mercy triumphed over judgment. Jesus took our judgment on the cross so that we might receive his freedom to love both now and forevermore. And then the resurrection proves that his mercy did, in fact, triumph over judgment as he's forgiven us of all of our sins, including the sins of partiality. For those that repent and believe upon him. And so that now those of us that do that repent and believe on Christ, we've been born again, right? We, we, we neighbors, as it were, we have been given the word of truth, the same love as he had. And we believers uh, who, as James says in verse five, have been chosen have been chosen to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Now we might, verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. We're chosen, given new life, that we might so speak and so act as those to be judged under the law of liberty. As those, that is, who are in Christ. We so speak and so act as the king of glory did. Impartially, loving all, even our enemies. And some of you say, that's impossible. And you're exactly right. That's why Jesus had to come. He had to die because love like this is impossible. Without the mercy of Christ on the cross. And the power of the resurrection. It's impossible. Without the presence of the spirit. He overcame sin in us. So that we might love like him. By loving others like him. Impartially. I think it's important to note that we live in a city that's calling out for equality. And yet, friends, the reality is we are as divided as we have ever been. It's not worked. And as Christians, you should know, if you're a friend to that, like we want you to know, friend, that we as Christians, we too are committed, hopefully you see from this passage, to equality. In fact, I would argue the desire for equality is explicitly rooted in the Christian worldview. You cannot have it without Christ. You would never even get there without the gospel. But the reality, we as Christians, we don't want that equality by distinctions among ourselves when we become judges with evil thoughts. We don't want equality like that. We want equality in the distinctions that God has made among himself 
as the king of glory with pure thoughts. Our definitions of equality have to submit to his because he is the light and life of man. And insofar as they do, we operate in that law of liberty. And insofar as we don't, we keep on creating and living in our own partialities, living under our own laws. We then, as scripture says, we then just submit to another yoke of slavery. And as it says there in verse 13, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. So do you want freedom? Do you want a just society for all? Do you want to be loved? Then come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Submit your life to him as the king of glory and stop trying to find glory for yourself or your group for itself. Hear his word, then do his word. That's the only way you'll find true and lasting freedom. That's the only way that you'll find true and lasting glory. And for those of us that do, that have submitted our life to the love of Christ. We happy few. For those of us that have been forgiven and empowered to love, for those of us who are rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom, may we so act and so speak as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. In other words, as it says in Galatians 5, 13 to 15, Ray, our brother Ray read this to us at the elders meeting on Monday night. So helpful. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh to be impartial or to be partial. But through love, what are we to do? That's what we're to not do. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. By the way, same language as James. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So, friends, Restoration Church family, let's be that counter-cultural community of impartiality. It's not partial, but loves all. Do not be partial, but instead, we be a community that shows love to all. Caring for those in need. Being unstained from the world. Knowing that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. Let's be a people like that. Let's be a community like that. By learning to love as Christ did. Getting all of our glory in him. Not needing it anywhere else. That's the way to freedom. That's the way to everlasting glory. Let's walk in that. They will know, right? They will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Especially all the different types. In different groups and the like. That's how we show that this is a countercultural community that heaven has broken in on the earth. Not just the people we like, all of us. Not just the people that are in the same station as us, all of us. Do this and we will reap a reward that is greater than any fading glory on this earth. Do it not and we will live in frustration all of our days. And so may we be the kinds of people that live for the glory of Christ, the King of glory. Learn to live in the law of liberty. Learn. To love as Jesus loved, impartially. For his glory and our good and our neighbor's good. Let's be a people like that. And I thank God for the ways that you are. That we strive towards that end. Let's pray together. Fathers, we meditate on these verses. We're mindful of the fact that we are partial in ways. We thank you for the hope of forgiveness. 
but forgive us where we have failed and empower us to love as Jesus did, impartially. Calling all people, no matter what station of life, to repent and believe and come in to the community of Christ, the church, that we might display what heaven is going to be like. Heaven will be a diverse place. Hell will also be diverse. But heaven will be as diverse and as beautiful and as full of love. Anything we could see here. And so may we be a kind of reflection of that God. Empower us, because it's hard. So much of these partial things are in us deep. So empower us by having a vision of Christ in his community, in his kingdom. Empower us to be these kinds of people. Empower us to love our neighbor as ourselves, no matter who that neighbor is. And call them to Jesus and love them like Jesus. Help us towards that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.